This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, marijuana is one of the fastest growing industries in our state, but not everyone has been able to participate. When it wasn't regulated, the person that was selling was a drug dealer. We'll look at recent legislation that aims to open up opportunities for those who've been left out. Plus, we explore how Colorado has approached enacting police reform. And we hear the story of a World War II era plane that crashed into Lake Mead. That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The nation is bracing for a verdict in the murder trial against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Since the death of George Floyd nearly one year ago, there's been a growing call for communities across America to pass meaningful police reform. But how far has our region come in enacting that change? As KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, Colorado is among the first states to pass some of the boldest reform measures to date. Colorado Democratic State Legislator Leslie Harrod says the historic demonstrations in Colorado last year compelled lawmakers to move fast. We had such pressure, not only from folks protesting outside of the state capitol in Denver, but from across the state to say that this is wrong. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. The Colorado legislature returned for a short session last spring amid America's reckoning on racism and police brutality. That's when Herod, who chairs the state's Black Democratic Caucus, helped craft a sweeping police reform bill. We took it upon the state legislature to say that we are going to address this issue of police brutality, and we're going to do it now. With the support of all Democratic legislators, they brought Republican lawmakers and police lobbyists to the table, too, passing SB 217 during a whirlwind session. They did this in a state with the sixth highest rate of police killings in the nation. Justin Smith is Larimer County Sheriff, and he chairs the County Sheriff's Legislative Committee. They helped mold the bill as it moved through the state legislature at a rapid pace. In a little over a 10-day period, we worked to write over 40 successful amendments. And they had to give up on some issues, like qualified immunity for police officers. Qualified immunity is a legal doctrine that protects police from civil lawsuits. The new law eliminates that protection for local cops in Colorado. Now Smith and other officers worry police could be unfairly punished for doing their jobs. The removal of qualified immunity, combined with the bill's other measures, caught the attention of criminal justice experts across the nation. There's no other state a legislator in this country that has been able to do what Colorado has done to date. It just hadn't happened. That's Howard Henderson. He heads the Center for Justice Research at Texas Southern University. He says Colorado is ground zero for police reform because the state's new law ticks multiple boxes. Body-worn cameras, use of force, duty to intervene, firing police officers, qualified immunity, police prosecutions, protester protections, and data tracking all in one bill. In Colorado, it wasn't only the death of George Floyd that galvanized protesters and forced lawmakers to act. Representative Leslie Harrod says it was also... The subsequent knowledge of Elijah McLean's death. McLean's death was Colorado's to confront. In August 2019, in Aurora, east of Denver, McLean was tackled, handcuffed, and injected with a powerful sedative after police received a call about a suspicious person. 
The 23-year-old black man died a few days later. A recent independent investigation was deeply critical of police and paramedics' actions that night. His mother, Shanine McLean, spoke to KUNC's Colorado edition in February. She says her son's story touched a lot of people for different reasons. But Shanine McLean says one thing transcends all of that. If we take out all the boxes and categories that we're placed in, we're just human. We're just human, and humans should care about each other. McLean's death not only helped spur legislative action, it forced local reforms, too. Aurora Police Chief Vanessa Wilson was hired roughly a year after McLean died and quickly implemented changes, like banning the type of chokehold officers used on McLean. Now a community policing task force wants the power to fire officers. Wilson says she's open to that, too. We have to change and we have to evolve because that's what the community is is asking for not just the Aurora Police Department, but law enforcement in general. Criminal justice expert Henderson says reform at the local and state level is most impactful. That's where 85 percent of criminal justice happens. And the public appetite for such reform is only growing. The societal consensus changes over time on all manner of issues. Look, abortion gay rights. Policing is not excluded from that. Henderson says law enforcement has been hesitant to change, but that no system of power maintains itself forever. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. This legislative session, Democrats are continuing to pursue change, taking more action because of events surrounding Elijah McLean's death. An independent report for Aurora City Council released this year found that medics appeared to sedate the 23-year-old black man who was already restrained by police and in handcuffs without a proper diagnosis. It found that he received a dangerous dose of ketamine based on a grossly inaccurate estimation of his size. After being sedated, McLean went into cardiac arrest. Representatives Leslie Harrod and Yadira Caraveo, a pediatrician, introduced House Bill 1251 in response. The bill would ban almost all sedations in situations like the one involving McLean, where police were present. Marijuana is one of the fastest-growing industries here in Colorado. Medical and retail sales just for the month of February totaled over $167 million. But despite this huge growth, many people of color have been unable to stake their claim within the industry and start a business. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel has more on recent legislation that aims to change that. Michael Diaz Rivera's marijuana story begins about 16 years ago during an encounter with the police. It was nighttime, and he was driving around Colorado Springs with some friends. The cops come zooming up. They put their lights on, hop out their car, put their guns on us. They just come like, get out the car, get out the car. After searching the car, officers found about a half ounce of marijuana in several bags. I remember sitting in my jail cell that night, just being a 19-year-old boy, seeing all of my opportunities just closing my eyes. Diaz Rivera pled down from a felony distribution charge to one of marijuana possession. Like I wasn't hurting anybody. I wasn't doing anything bad. And now my future was being ruined for marijuana. He was ultimately put on a work release program, got three years of probation, and paid a couple thousand dollars in restitution. And with that felony on his record, Diaz Rivera has been unable to work in Colorado's marijuana industry. So, you know, I always like to say when it wasn't regulated, the person that was selling was a drug dealer. That's Sarah Woodson. She's the executive director of The Color of Cannabis. 
Its goal is to help black and brown people enter the industry through a mentorship program, business training, and criminal justice reform and lobbying. Now that it's regulated, the person that's selling is a businessman. Since Colorado's legal market started in January of 2014, marijuana sales have topped $10 billion. But there is a huge lack of diversity. According to state data, most of the medical and recreational business owners are white men. But last summer, Governor Jared Polis signed a bill allowing him to pardon anyone charged with possession of up to two ounces of the drug before it became legal. The legislation also created a social equity license program for qualified applicants based on three categories. Those living below a certain income level, those who grew up in communities harmed by the war on drugs, and this. Have you or your immediate family, so your brother, mother, sister, father, legal guardian, or spouse, had a cannabis arrest or conviction or an asset forfeiture that was related to cannabis. Meaning people can now apply to independently own and operate a regulated marijuana business or participate in an accelerator program with an established business. They're also eligible for fee waivers and other incentives and support. Cannabis is extremely competitive and extremely regulated, probably the most regulated industry. So therefore, we want to make sure that people have the tools that they need the Color of Cannabis offers a 10-week business incubator course to help people get started. It covers everything from the history of marijuana to licensing, zoning, and running a retail store. The first cohort of 12 people graduated a couple months ago, which included Michael Diaz Rivera. The fifth grade teacher has been interested in the business for a while and worked as a butt tender last summer. I'm just moving in, so excuse me, but this is my house, the boxes and everything. The 35-year-old has a big afro and warm smile. He recently bought his first house in Aurora and just got his social equity license through the state. I know so many people in similar situations like mine, and I want people to know that you can't give up. We can't let the system break us down. In January, Aurora became the first city in the state to allow retail marijuana deliveries. So he applied for a transporter license. For the next three years, only social equity applicants can get this license. And Aurora is only issuing delivery permits to marijuana stores or transporters. I think that when you look at cannabis delivery... Jordan Wellington is a partner at VIA Strategies and a national cannabis policy consultant. There's a variety of things that make it attractive from a social equity perspective. The first is that it's a new, it's in a sense, a new market. And he says a transporter business has significantly less startup costs compared to the seven-figure investment it could take for brick-and-mortar retail, cultivation, or manufacturing ventures. So if your goal is to create entrepreneurial opportunities in marginalized communities, identifying business opportunities that have lower barriers to entry are going to lead to greater likelihood of success in that policy. The state is also reducing financial barriers. In March, Governor Polis signed the Program to Support Marijuana Entrepreneurs Bill. It provides grants, loans, and technical assistance to aid social equity licensees, nonprofits, and other businesses working in this space. It's designed for industry newcomers like Michael Diaz Rivera. My dream is to own my own dispensary, own my whole cultivation, etc., and then deliver from that. But he's starting off small. His delivery permit should be approved this month. He's leased two cars and is outfitting them with the state-required cameras and safes needed to do deliveries. He hopes to soon partner with an Aurora dispensary and get to work. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC.
You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. When the pandemic forced the closure of schools across the state last year, many students from low-income families were no longer getting meals they used to eat at school. The Pandemic Electronic Benefits Transfer Program channeled federal relief money directly to low-income families, although it didn't reach everyone who was eligible. Now the PEBT program has been given the green light to extend the program for students still learning at home with a few changes. Here with more on this is Zach Bright, who wrote about the program for The Colorado Sun. Zach, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. Let's start with just a brief explanation of this pandemic EBT program. Uh, It started last spring. What did it aim to do exactly? How did it work? The pandemic EBT benefit was actually part of the federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And it was made in the spring of 2020 to supplement families who didn't have money and were either on SNAP or on free and reduced lunches, whose children were out of school because a lot of schools in Colorado had shifted to online remote learning. And so this was supplemental money given to the state government um, to distribute to families. And it reached around 180,000 students in Colorado in that time period. Was this all federal relief money or did states need to match any of this funding? As far as I know from my reporting, I believe it was just federal money. So Colorado, I think, got $49 million last time around, and that was distributed to the 180000 So how well did the program work here in Colorado? Did the money reach everyone as intended? And if not, why not? Like I said, 180,000 got it, but that's out of 355,000 who were actually eligible. So that's just a little over half. A lot of families didn't get that money that they needed um, because the state had a hard time determining what families were eligible. And there was a lot of administrative backlog. And that's actually what they're trying to prevent now. The reason it took a little bit of time and the recent round is actually retroactive. It goes back to the 2020 to 20. 21 school year, starting in August of 2020. The reason it has taken so long is because some schools have gone back to in-person learning, some have a hybrid model, and some are still remote. So that means some students don't need this money, but other students desperately do need it. And so the state has been busy trying to figure that out and make a plan that the USDA does approve of. It sounds really complicated because you're right, some schools are are shifting back and a lot of them are doing hybrid models. Is there a difference in the amount of funding that students get based on that? So if a school is in person, typically um, that means that the students don't need money that you would normally get through pandemic EBT because that means they should be getting food from the school. But if a school is fully remote, then that student should now in this latest package receive $136.40, I believe is the number. And if a student is learning remotely, but also in person in one of those hybrid models, that means they'll be getting $81.84 each month. As we mentioned, the USDA did give the go-ahead for Colorado's plans to extend the program. I'm wondering how long will families be able to apply and how long will they be able to get the benefit? Applying and being eligible uh, has been made a little simpler by the Department of Education, um, Colorado's Department of Education and the Department of Human Services who are in charge of this. Um, What they do is they look now at last year's eligibility. So if a student is in a family who is low income and either is eligible for supplemental nutrition assistance program, which is SNAP benefits, or if they are eligible for free and reduced lunch, then they would automatically be able to receive PEBT benefits. We know the program missed about half of the eligible students last year. I'm wondering with the extension, is there a plan to reach those who were not reached initially? The um, Departments of Education and Human Services, they've both said that they're working on doing more outreach and 
actually trying to get in contact with families to let them know if they have cards already that they either use for SNAP benefits or if they use for the earlier rounds of PEBT, that those cards will automatically get that money starting in late May. And so they don't have to worry about getting a new card. And those who don't have those yet, those you know who aren't part of that 180,000 that didn't get it in the first round, they should expect to get a card in the mail. I know you talked to several families who received the PEBT money last year. What did they say? Did they feel it made a difference for them? Yeah, I talked with one mother of three in Eagle, Carolina Guzman. And from what she said, it's really a beneficial thing to her to make sure that her children, she had two teenagers in high school and I believe one in middle school or maybe finishing elementary school, um, they were all learning on these different models. And so having that money to supplement her income was really helpful and beneficial to her. And she also said that her husband was out of work as well. And he had worked full time for three months because of the pandemic. So this money is actually going into these people's pockets so that they can make informed decisions and actually support their families, which is really important. Zach Bright is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Thanks so much for talking with us, Zach. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The Colorado River's biggest reservoirs are likely to drop to levels not seen in the decades since they were filled. And that's prompting mandatory conservation by some of the river's biggest users. 21 years of warmer-than-average temperatures have left Lakes Mead and Powell at historically low levels. A first-ever official shortage declaration from the Department of the Interior is almost certain to come later this year. Back in 1948, a World War II-era bomber crashed into one of those reservoirs, Lake Mead, formed by the Hoover Dam, which straddles the Arizona-Nevada border. After several failed attempts to locate the plane, it was finally discovered in the early 2000s, still remarkably intact. But given rising temperatures and sinking water levels, some experts are asking, will climate change finish it off? Franny Halperin with H2O Radio has that story. The official crash report was that the pilots were flying low to collect a last bit of scientific data before returning to base, and that the instruments on their B-29 aircraft were improperly calibrated. Also, the account said that Lake Mead, smooth as glass on that July morning in 1948, distorted their depth perception and sent the plane skipping like a stone across the water. The other side of the story that is told and also was repeated by flight crew is they were hot dogging. They were just, it's fun to fly as low as you can. It just is. That's Susan Edwards, an archaeologist and historian at the Desert Research Institute, or DRI. Whatever the truth, when the B-29 hit Lake Mead, the impact stripped off three of its four engines and took out part of the tail as one of them whipped past. The pilot and the co-pilot were able to wrestle the plane back into the air for about another two to 300 yards, but with only one engine left and it on fire. Luckily, they were able to ditch the plane straight and level and pop the hatches to escape. Four of the five, anyway. A crew member in the back, Frank Rico, had been thrown against the bulkhead and broke his arm. Now, the plane was going down tail first. He was trying to get out, but his parachute got stuck. The captain and the co-pilot realized that he had not popped up out of the back, and they heard him banging on the interior of the plane. And they went back in and were able to pull him free. So they got into rafts 
and the plane went down about 12 minutes later. The men were rescued, but the B-29 would be lost in a watery catacomb almost 280 feet below the lake's surface. That is until in 2003 when Dave Conlon laid eyes on it. It really literally looked like a spaceship sitting on the bottom of the of the lake and it was clean and shiny and you could see the you know the all the stenciling. Conlon is the chief of the Submerged Resources Center of the National Park Service which manages underwater assets from coral reefs to shipwrecks. The first dive on the plane was oh my goodness this is so deep this is so scary this is so dark and then suddenly we saw the aircraft and it was just beautiful but actually he wasn't the first to see it several people had tried without success to locate the plane including the pilot who had hired a salvage diver and then what happened is is that um a local diver uh, went out with a with a side scan sonar and looked for the plane. Which, without a permit, is against park regulations, but he did find it. He and a, a team of beginning technical divers started diving on the plane. And over the course of a year, they, they set up lights and they, they were filming and they, they removed items. Their plan was to do a documentary, file a salvage claim, and sell the aircraft. Then we said, well, wait a minute, it's in a national park and it's a U.S. military aircraft and you found it illegally. Following a court battle, the Park Service prevailed as the rightful custodian. And now the challenge is to have the public appreciate the B-29 and its history. So what is the history? Why was the plane flying over Lake Mead? Jeff Wedding, Sue's colleague at DRI, gives the backstory that starts with the rise of Nazi Germany. The powers that be in the military are realizing we may be drawn into a global conflict. A call goes out from the War Department for a new type of bomber, the B-29 Super Fortress, as it came to be known. It's pushing the boundaries on aviation design. It's going to be twice the size, carry twice the payload, go twice the distance as anything we've got flying, and it'll do it 100 miles an hour faster. A pair of B-29s, the Enola Gay and the Boxcar, would become famous as the planes that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. But the B-29, sitting at the bottom of Lake Mead, had a different mission. It was designed for photo reconnaissance, to take post-mission bomb damage assessment photographs or to take preliminary photos of a target. After the war, many B-29s were mothballed. But the Lake Mead plane, with its observation windows, was perfectly suited to do emerging science on the upper atmosphere. So aboard the plane on that July morning in 1948 was an instrument called the Sun Tracker. It was a, a spectrograph that uh, focused on the bandwidths of light. The mission was to measure infrared rays, research that would lead to the creation of heat-seeking missiles. And although the data were lost in the wreck, the plane offers a glimpse into history because it's intact even with the co-pilot's headset still dangling on the stick, along with Frank Rico's parachute after they cut him free. Also, the B-29 is sitting in fresh water that preserves it better than had it crashed in the ocean. Or not. Starting in 2007, quagga mussels, a tiny invasive species that harms ecosystems and damages infrastructure, started appearing in the lake. You still get the sense of the, the B-29, but it is covered with it and it is weighing on the fabric and the structural members, the sheer weight of the quaggas. Park Service divers like Conlon will monitor how the mussels are affecting the plane and also what happens as the region gets warmer and drier. So as the lake 
level drops, the plane becomes easier and easier to access. And so the number of people who have the skill and ability to dive on the plane has increased dramatically. And that epitomizes a common dilemma for the Park Service. We all have a, a mandate and a desire to involve the American people in their national parks. And in the process of doing that, of course, we don't want the thing that we're showing people to be destroyed. One way to protect the B-29 is to grant it National Historic Landmark status. And an application by the Park Service is under review with a decision possibly by summer. Do I wish that it still looked like a spaceship? Absolutely. We are in the forever business. And my job is to leave our parks the way I found them. And if If I do my job well, no one will ever know that I ever did my job. For H2O Radio, I'm Franny Halperin. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we learn about a new memorial coming to the Museum of Boulder honoring the lives lost to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Thanks so much for listening.